0: My name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with
1: Will Sloan.
0: And this week, I hope our listeners are ready to get animated, because we're talking about Ralph Bakshi,
1: adults only. Ralph Bakshi is the director of Fritz the Cat, Heavy Traffic, American Pop, Fire and Ice, as well as that movie that you always looked at at the video store and thought, ew, what's that? Yes, I'm talking about Cool World.
0: The one that, if you rented and watched, you actually learned, oh, it is actually about having sex with cartoon characters now
1: i have had scattered experiences with ralph bakshi throughout my life and none of them have been very positive i saw wizards when i was a kid didn't like it i saw fritz the cat when i was in second year undergrad left me totally unmoved I saw Fire and Ice at some point, and you know, if there's one thing that I cannot abide in this world, just irrationally, it's um, super serious, like solemn cartoons for grown-ups from like the late '70s and early '80s. You know, stuff like heavy metal or, you know, stuff that has like Conan the Barbarian aesthetics, basically. I thought
0: you were going to say the one thing you can't abide is rotoscoping, in which case I would agree with you.
1: Oh, and how could I forget that Ralph Bakshi is also very famous for doing that animated version of Lord of the Rings that you don't like?
0: (laughs) Return of the King? The Hobbit?
1: Uh, The the one with all the rotoscoping. (sighs) uh, The one that everybody has seen a bit of on TV and and is repulsed by. Uh, But hey... Possibly some Ralph Bakshi fans are listening to this, and Justin and I were both very interested in exploring Ralph Bakshi's oeuvre, because he has an interesting place in film history. He is the cartoons for grown-ups guy. He is the guy who made all of that forbidden fruit when you were a kid.
0: And you know what? I come from the same position that you do, is that... I think maybe in the early 2000s there was a kind of Bakshi renaissance in the sense that a bunch of DVD companies started to put these, you know, dangerous movies out. So I owned Wizards, I owned Fire and Ice, I owned uh, even the MGM, I believe, DVD of Heavy Traffic. And I did not like any of them. I was repulsed by them. (laughs) They were not fun. They're not funny. And I was like, I don't don't get these. And I think I probably saw Fritz the Cat, if you saw it at Sinsu, I was at that screening and I did not like that movie either. I actually
1: did not see it at Sinsu. I saw it in my dorm room, I remember. So I uh, whatever whatever night that was, they played it at Sinsu. I was not there. You certainly would have had a better experience with it. Well, you would have seen it on 35mm film with a roaring audience.
0: I did. And it was still miserable. Didn't make it any better. I think, though, that like revisiting his work this week, which I've always had a kind of fascination with, I came to the conclusion that, man, I really really like a lot of this Bakshi stuff. Also, I don't find it funny. It's poorly timed and it's incredibly ugly. Yes.
1: Okay. I am in a similar place to you, except that I I still don't really like the stuff, but I do have some respect for it. Here's what I'll tell you. Very little in these movies actually sticks with me. When they're on screen, there are many interesting and amusing things to look at. And when it's over, I don't think about it anymore.
0: Really? Because like Heavy Traffic is all about the kind of cartoons that we know as kids, but filtered through like just disturbing stuff that uh, kind of uh, creates a parallel between, you know, the cheapest Warner Brothers cartoons and... Just ugliness. I don't know how. What other way to say it? And that sticks with me. Like it makes me feel nauseous when I watch it.
1: I definitely like it as you describe it. Like that. Heavy traffic is the best of the three movies that we watched this week. Maybe you watched more. Uh, I do find his movies, like you, very unpleasant and a little boring. And. You know, as I've gotten older, in some ways, I'm more ready to appreciate elements of them. But in other ways, I mean, I don't find them as transgressive as I would have as a child. You know, And why but- do
0: you say that you don't find them transgressive? Only because, you know, if I had to take a guess, because... Your reaction is like, oh, he's putting sex and violence on screen. But what is he saying about those things other than the just act of doing it?
1: Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think in some of these movies, he's saying some like semi-interesting things. I don't think it's I don't think it's like just a provocation. I think there is a worldview here. But I mean, these things are awfully unpleasant. Oh, yeah. Without being very fun or funny. I don't know, just kind of like wallowing in transgressive imagery isn't all that exciting me. I mean, okay, there's a worldview, but how interesting a worldview is it? I think maybe we'll get into that. Mm -hmm.
0: I think it's mostly an articulation of who he is. And he likes to talk about where he grew up. So let's jump into his uh, bio a little bit, which is that Ralph Bakshi, he grew up in Brooklyn. He was a bad student. He likes to say this in every interview. And somehow he ended up working for Terry Toons. Now, you may not be familiar with Terry Toons. Essentially, they're like the shitty Warner Brothers. (laughs) They have such uh, classic characters as Heckle and Jekyll. Oh, Mighty Mouse was another one of their big ones. Am
1: I right? That Fritz the Cat was like his first movie as a director?
0: It was. uh, His original plan was to do heavy traffic as a movie. But what ended up happening was that I think his producer at the time said, listen, you got to do an adaptation first, you know, get a property that's popular feature-length adult animation just doesn't exist. That's not to say that adult animation has never existed. It always has. Like, some of the first, you know, animated things were just crude images of people having sex. But in the sense of it being feature-length and released widely, that was unheard of until... Back she made fritz
1: the cat and this is based on the classic r crumb underground comic character r crumb by the way disowned this movie later the film opens in the 1960s and fritz the lovable cat he can be found going around to protests trying to pick up uh, the hippie chicks Uh, later in the film however fritz has an epiphany it's that he actually wants to become a revolutionary now Very tellingly, he has this epiphany while having sex with one of the Black characters, who is a crow. There are several different groups represented in this film. Black people are are represented by animated crows police officers are, of course, pigs. There are violent revolutionaries who are like tentacled monsters in trench coats. And then there are cats like uh, Fritz, who are just kind of like the normal society. And don't
0: forget neo-Nazis, which are obviously uh, heroin-addicted bunnies who ride around on motorcycles. Well, of course. Now, this movie, I mean, we're gonna say this probably a lot during this podcast. Out of all the ones that I watched of his early period, this is probably the one that I have the least affinity for. This one, I feel Bakshi's kind of jacketed to the material. The episodic nature and uh, the very our crummish style that he's trying to replicate limits the movie from going into any kind of wild experimental tangents. So it essentially feels just like a regular cartoon that's a little bit more poorly animated than normal ones, but there's uh, nudity and animals having sex in it.
1: I'll tell you what I found interesting about this movie. It came out in 1972 and I can imagine that like, okay, you're going into like second term Richard Nixon and uh, all the idealists of the 60s feels like it's very far in the rearview mirror at this point, even though it was just a few years ago. Like, I don't know, I just watched Tu Va Bien again recently, and that captures some some of that spirit. This movie came out around the time that Hunter S. Thompson wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and that book has that wonderful, memorable speech about the wave. Thompson was writing about that sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil, not in any mean or military sense. We didn't need that our energy would simply prevail there was no point in fighting on our side or theirs we had all the momentum we were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave and now less than five years later you can go up on a steep hill in las vegas and look west and with the right kind of eyes you can almost see that high watermark that place where the wave finally broke and rolled back now i don't know if ralph bakshi was like necessarily thinking in such uh, poetic terms when he was making this movie but there's an air of defeat in this movie there's an air of i don't know if nihilism is the right word maybe it's too strong a word but there's a feeling of like ah, everybody's a phony yeah
0: i mean fritz the cat sucks. yeah he does <laughs> he's like so lame even though like you know the marketing would lead you to believe that like fritz the cat man he's a cool guy he's the cat that fucks but when you watch the movie he's voiced by like the most like white bread white guy that you could get, which is funny because that's one of the big problems that Crumb had with the film, is he thought that Fritz should have had the voice of Bakshi himself, which would have been a completely different character in my opinion. But at the same time, I still see the kind of personal touches that Bakshi has and also the shortcuts of being able to animate a feature-length film being presented here. Like, the fact that there's whole sequences that are just documentary conversations that are actually recorded on the sly that he then animated, specifically the stuff that happens in the bar with the crows, like, that dialogue is not scripted. It's like those man animations of, like, the talking animals kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, and I should say that, like, my thumb is basically up on this movie because I do think that, like, it does capture something interesting and it captures something authentic. I mean, there are a lot of jokes in the movie about the distance between actual revolutionary politics and the politics of many of the people who call for revolution, there are, like, the movie is just a big stew of jokes about socio-political topics. Like, you know, there's there's a swipe at the United States' relationship with Israel at one point. A lot of stuff about the police. So it's one of those, I guess you could call it like an equal opportunity offender, quote unquote. <laughs> Yikes! <laughs>
0: uh, which
1: I know doesn't sound very good, but I do think it captures something kind of authentic that was in the air, a feeling of sort of defeat and hopelessness. I do appreciate that, even though I didn't find the movie funny or... No. I found it a bit boring at times, and you know, very unpleasant throughout. Yeah,
0: I think that boring is probably the word that I would associate the most with Fritz the Cat. Because once you go beyond, like, oh my God, I saw an animated section of a woman's anatomy, then you know, uh, it's it's such a mess. And I think that heavy traffic, the film that was closer to Bakshi's own life and worldview, and is also even uglier than Fritz the Cat, is something that I find is more a healing just because it is that personal perspective. And I should say that like, something that Bakshi animation has, his feature films that nobody else has, is that they are a extension of his self in a way that's almost impossible to do within an animated form. Because animation has so many hands and just, you know, different creative people that have to come together to bring it to the screen that it's difficult to get a personal perspective on things. And Bakshi was one of the few people in North America that was able to do it in feature length form in the 70s, most specifically when he was at like probably his most powerful, until he completely torpedoed his career because he went one step too far.
1: Heavy Traffic is a kind of kaleidoscopic vision of urban alienation and desperation. There's a main character whose name is Michael Corleone, uh, not to be confused with cinema's other famous Michael Corleone, He is an underground cartoonist, or at least an aspiring underground cartoonist, and we first encounter him in live-action footage, where he's played by a real-life actor, a guy named Joseph Kaufman. He spends most of the movie at an arcade, where he's playing pinball, and the pinball machine has heavy metaphorical significance here. It conveys cruel randomness of existence in the hellhole of the city that this is sat in. I mean, it's basically New York City, right? Yeah,
0: it's New York City. uh, New York City of like Taxi Driver and the other like blasted dystopian visions of New York in the 70s. But you know, now it's animated with cartoon style gags, but you know, people will bleed, and it will be very unpleasant, and there will be spousal abuse animated like it was, you know, a Cheap Jack uh, Warner Brothers cartoon. So
1: there are a dizzying range of characters in the animated world that is Cheers. Uh, the bulk of the running time of the film. You've got Michael's parents. He's got a Jewish mother who is very horny and an Italian father who's kind of a wannabe mafioso. There's a bar where a lot of the stuff happens. So there's a legless bartender and a black barmaid named Carol, who is the lead character's object of desire. There's also a drag queen sex worker, Snowflake, who runs in and out. Just a range of grotesque images that we see a lot of naked and ugly cartoon flash, a lot of very brutal violence, a lot of crime and prostitution, and it's all set against this backdrop of poverty and decay. And also, I think it's worth mentioning, a lot of imagery that could be interpreted as ambiguously racist. Uh,
0: ambiguously racist?
1: Well, it's like, how much of it is ironic, or this or that, Well, right?
0: I, I mean, Bakshi you know, has gone on record saying that it's all... The racist kind of stereotypes that he's presenting on screen are to confront the audience with it in the ugliest context possible. I mean, I know you didn't watch Coonskin, but that's all his other film that followed this one, aka Street Fight, aka Harlem Nights, deals with, where, you know, he readapted the tales of Uncle Remus, but made it like gangsters that kind of look enough like Bugs Bunny without being able to be sued. And
1: by the way, my pledge to important Cinema Club Nation is that I am eventually going to see Coonskin because I'm intrigued by oh, it. Oh,
0: it is even uglier than um, Heavy Traffic. You see, that
1: that gets me interested. It's like, wow, how could it get uglier than this? Like, now that, that I got to see.
0: Heavy Traffic, again, when I watched it as a kid, I remember how, like, disconnected I was from the fact that, like, none of the jokes made me laugh. Uh, the character designs, which are just a Baxi staple, are... It's so ugly. Everyone's squat. They all have giant lips. Their eyes are all bugging out the entire time. (laughs) It's just not fun to look at. It's not something that I would want to draw when I was a kid. And there is a dissonance with uh, what Bakshi loves to do, which is create a kind of collage feel to his film. So there's all these mixed medias being played out. Uh, I would say unsuccessfully as a storytelling tool, but interesting as a kind of visual experience as you're watching it play out, which is all over heavy traffic. Yeah, I
1: mean, as a storytelling experience, I would say the movie is like basically a failure, like you don't. Yes. (laughs) You're not here for the story. So, you know, I definitely appreciated a lot of the stuff that Bakshi was doing with his animation. I mean, there are a lot of these shots of two-dimensional cell animation that are imposed against real photographs or live action footage or in some cases scenes from old movies that are playing in the background i mean that's that's really interesting there's an unusual scene where there are a bunch of female models in bikinis and they're photographed in a photo negative style so it kind of looks like they're glowing in the dark and That live action footage, again, is set against two-dimensional cell animation. And there's a lot of stuff like, you know, there's a scene where it's set in the Edward Hopper painting the Nighthawks. So, you know, a lot of visual quotations. So I don't know. There's always like every scene has something interesting to look at.
0: I think that the way that I would recommend somebody approach the film is not as a storytelling experience where you can be involved in any kind of dramatic arc of the film. But imagine it like flipping through... Uh, The diary that is somehow cartooned of the person that made it and there's pages missing and there's stuff that's too real but somehow he wrote down anyway and that's what heavy traffic is and you know the kind of impressive thing that I find in it is that it is an animated film like you could do a live action version of this and it would almost be like you know Andy Warhol's trash or something like that yeah. but the fact that it's animated makes it even more unpleasant because our brains are not programmed to see these kind of events play out in that way also within the rules that animation at it has evolved has been laid down yeah
1: i'll just say right now that like one obstacle i had this week is like on on an almost like biological chemical level i hate looking at porny cartoons why is that i don't know it's just like i don't i don't i don't like it <laughs>
0: (laughs) I'm very curious about that because you don't really like animation beyond the Warner Brothers, right? That's not something that you look towards or seek out. Well,
1: actually, I'm not so sure. I mean, I like the Fleischer cartoons. No, Uh,
0: I mean, like, the year. So, like, 50s onward. Like, you, you like that classic theatrical era of animation, But you're like not like you don't go looking for like new animation, like even 80s onward.
1: That's actually probably true. Although there is a lot of I will say there's a lot of animation from 80s onward that like I respect and think is good. Like, well, I don't know. I like the the fucking The Simpsons or, you know, (laughs) Batman, the animated series is good, you know. (laughs) But I would say
0: I have like an affinity for animation as a medium that I don't think you share. I mean, that's a very broad generalization, but like. Uh, I go towards animation. Like, I really like animation, especially hand-drawn stuff in any era.
1: I won't confirm or deny that now, but I'm going to think on that and get back to you. Because I
0: remember you. when you started watching these Vaxxin movies, you did message me, and you're like, I just, there's something I don't like about it. Like, even before you started watching it. <laughs> and, I mean, that's you admitting yeah. to, to use a big word, prejudices in this context. Yeah, it is. That is connected to something not necessarily uh, from the work itself, which, as I said again, ugly, <laughs> miserable, so... It's not like you're seeing something that I'm going, oh, it's a masterpiece. Why don't you understand this, Will? Uh, But the porny cartoon thing
1: is funny. I I will tell you a porny cartoon that I like, which is that uh, ever ready hard on and buried treasure. Did you ever see that like ancient cartoon from like the 1920s? Yeah,
0: that's what I was thinking of when I said like early cartoons have had boners forever. That's exactly the cartoon that I was thinking of. I love that
1: cartoon, but... You know, Ralph Bakshi in the late 70s and early 80s, he definitely swung for the fences. He made these films like Lord of the Rings and Fire and Ice that were really ambitious, you know, a lot of stuff in them. And I guess it didn't go all that well for him because it took nine years Uh, Until he made his final animated film, which is an animation live action hybrid, which is 1992's Cool World, which is a movie that, of course, we had to watch for this episode.
0: Well, before we get to Cool World, I just want to maybe fill in a little bit more uh, transitional information because... Uh, Fritz the Cat and Heavy Traffic were pretty big financial successes. But when he made Coonskin, that completely tanked his career because the film premiered at MoMA and it was instantly picketed by a number of organizations who wanted to highlight it for the racist caricatures that were all over it. And they weren't wrong whether Bakshi, you'll accept that uh, his subversions work or not. And like uh, after that, he really struggled, like he was working on a film called Hey There, uh, Good Lookin' while he was making Coonskin, and uh, the film was dropped by Paramount after that. So he kind of struggled, and the movie Wizards that he made was his answer to be like, oh, I can make stuff that's a hit as well. And when it came out, it was a you know modest hit. It was crushed by Star Wars from 20th Century Fox. But Bakshi has always been a guy that... I mean, I haven't read any big biographies or anything like that, but from the hints that I've got here or there is that he is someone who doesn't have that much control over his work and it can get away from him at times. So uh, rotoscoping is something that he accepted as kind of a cost cutting measure. And, you know, it's easier to do stuff rotoscoped. I'm sure people are going to argue with me and they're like, you don't know anything about animation than it is. Um, you know, doing it by hand. And that's why like Lord of the Rings and American Pop and all those other films are rotoscoped. And I just got to say, I got to get in my ro- ro- rotoscope uh, soapbox here. It sucks, man. Like the Uncanny Valley is wild. And unless you're, you know, doing something over it and using a base to make something even more surreal, don't do it. It's not fun. <laughs> like, it's just not fun to watch. Like I watched American Pop this week. Ugh, Not good. <laughs> Did not like it at all.
1: Do you like Waking Life?
0: I was going to say Waking Life. Yes, because that is literally doing what I said is doing kind of wild and wacky things with the kind of grounded rotoscope look.
1: So had you ever seen Cool World before? Oh, yeah, I, I had seen Cool
0: World. <laughs> I mean, Cool World, anyone that knows it, it is such a weird train wreck of a movie that like it's fun to just bring up in regular everyday conversation, even though I did not see it when I was a kid. I only saw it, um, you know, in my 20s.
1: I definitely like for all my life I had a kind of visceral repulsion towards this movie that it was like oh it's that
0: <laughs> oh Maybe we finally found the root of your hate for porn animation. It's been looking at that box art of Cool World during the time of its release.
1: Yeah, it's like, what is this? What is this like porny cartoon for grownups? No, thanks. Yeah,
0: no, thanks. Give me Roger Rabbit. You know, there's no sex in that cartoon. And I
1: mean, I think America basically agreed with me because this movie was not a success. It basically ruined his career once and for all. And I finally watched it today. And, you know, it's not very good, but I have to say it's like... I don't know, it's got, it's got some interesting stuff in it. I, it was, Better than I thought it might be. The
0: backstory of Cool World, it's one of those fun ones, which is like, what could it have been? Because like the story goes, Ralph Bakshi, he pitched a horror film to Paramount, which was about a toon and a human being have a kid and that kid essentially becomes a serial killer. And Paramount's like, oh yeah, this is great. Do it. Uh, The story goes that they started production. They started building sets. And then behind his back, the producer, Frank Mancuso Jr., completely rewrote the script. And then gave it to him and said, you're not making your horror film. I've done too many horror films. We don't want to be the studio that only does Friday the 13th. This is what you're going to do instead. Ralph Bakshi was so angry, he punched Frank Mancuso Jr. in the face. And he still made the movie anyway. And told his animators, just animate whatever you want. And we'll put it in the movie, not even letting them know that the script had been changed. Which, when you watch the film, you're like, that makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, that definitely explains a lot. So the narrative thread of the film is there are two time periods. We begin in 1945. It's right after the Second World War. A veteran, played by a young Brad Pitt, has returned. And he gets in a traffic accident almost immediately. And that sends him not to heaven or hell but to an alternate reality known as Cool World, which is kind of like Toontown on Acid. Cool
0: World is kind of like the title that they came up with and said, all right, we're going to stay here all night until we come up with something better than Cool World. And they're like, "Ah, I guess we're going with Cool World. I mean, Toontown on Acid is one way to say it. You could also say... It's Terry Toons Town, because it's all the characters that time has forgot, uh, fairly poorly animated in that very early 90s style. Now, there's
1: another time frame in this film. Some of the rest of the film takes place in 1992, where the other main character, played by Gabriel Byrne, is a cartoonist who created Cool World with his own pen and ink. And he did that while he's serving time in prison. And his greatest creation in this fictional universe is a blonde sexpot named Holly Wood. And she's voiced by Kim Basinger. And to my eyes, she's even hotter than Jessica Rabbit is. And
0: I gotta say, you know, as one of those like lost, what could have been? I know what the movie would have been. I've seen Ralph Bakshi's other films. It would have been a mess like Cool World
1: is. So Hollywood ends up being uh, flipped back into the real world where she becomes a, uh, a human woman played by the human Kim Basinger. Brad Pitt, meanwhile, wants to, well, I mean, there's a lot of going back and forth between the main world and the real world. There are people who want to live. In uh, one version or the other. And in the end, there was a basically a great big collapse where all of the Toon World uh, is seen doing an apocalypse in Las Vegas, basically, and you've got all of these characters who are kind of reminiscent of familiar cartoon archetypes. Like, there's a Superman character, for example, who's there. It's like if Toontown was like really a rundown place filled
0: with like poverty row cartoon characters. I mean, you miss the most important part, which is this film hinges on Gabriel bird climaxing in a cartoon character, which starts this whole apocalypse.
1: That's very important. I mean, what what can you say about it i think the flaws of the movie which are many yeah it's
0: boring it's not particularly funny <laughs> uh
1: the yeah the the plot is not is not good it's not a plot that i like um and also like a lot of the animation is actually like kind of good a lot of the character designs are interesting and weird there's just like too much well, of it. it's
0: like transmissions from an animator's brain as he's dying that just pop up on screen at random moments and i'm not even being like sarcastic like animation will just pop up screaming skulls will just fly across the screen without motivation yeah
1: okay that part in particular really confused me that screaming skull i was trying to figure out what why is that <laughs> why did it i see it feels that?
0: almost like bakshi is fighting against the material that he's being forced to make and so he's just putting as much of it as he can in the frame and there's like you know just like who framed roger rabbit there's a whole bunch of like You know, references to classic, like, Fleischer or Terry Toon characters. Little Orphan Annie shows up as well. Like, character designs that the big screen hasn't seen for, like, 70 years (laughs) show up in Cool World, which is interesting and does kind of lead it value as a kind of repository for a bunch of garbage in a film that doesn't really work in the way that its producers or even director intended it to. Although
1: I do think the movie is better than its toxic reputation. I think, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff in here. Those
0: great uh, expressionist sets that they actually blew up from drawings, and that the characters can walk around is that's super fun. I mean, it just suffers from, you know, uh, no direction, no storytelling skill. No pace. No pace. Uh, actors who cannot make eye contact with their animated counterparts. Okay, how about
1: that scene where Brad Pitt, like, puts his arm around his, like, cartoon prostitute girlfriend, and, like, you can see his arm is, like, way around, like, where the cartoon is. I
0: mean, it's interesting that, like, Ralph Bakshi, supposedly for his entire career, one of his his goals was mixing live action elements with cartoon characters, and that they could interact. And this was before Roger Rabbit, but obviously post um, what is it, Tom and Jerry, or just Jerry dancing with Gene Kelly? I think. Yeah,
1: that's right. And uh, what was that movie? Was Anchored, that just-
0: uh Away. Yeah. You know, I applaud him wanting to do that, but he never succeeded. In his career, and this last film is not a good example of it either. I mean, Cool World is also fascinating as a transitional piece because one of the last things that Ralph Bakshi did was the new adventures of Mighty Mouse. I don't know if you ever watched this cartoon, did you, Will?
1: No, I never did. So, this
0: came out in the late 80s, and if you look at clips of it, you're like, oh, like this is the 90s cartoons you know, the proto version of them. And it is because it had all of the names behind it, probably most famously, Very Bad Man John K., who was Ralph Bakshi's protege. The
1: future creator of Ren and Stimpy. So
0: after that, John K., uh, the same year Cool World came out, he created Ren and Stimpy, which was an evolution of the style that he developed under Ralph Bakshi. And, you know, Ren and Stimpy is the forebearer of all animation in the 90s. So it's kind of fascinating that Ralph Bakshi, the adult cartoon guy who did his stuff from an individualist perspective is also the uh, person who gave birth to the animation, like that gross out kind of Ren and Stimpy clones that me and you experienced throughout our entire youth.
1: Oh yes. Now, if we take one thing away from this episode, it should be that, Hollywood from Cool World is uh, a sexier cartoon than Jessica Rabbit Hot is.
0: take. And uh, nobody try to counter that. Just contact Will directly <laughs> with your takes. <laughs> All right. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Lucas Simon Foster. And it goes In keeping with your coverage of off malign comedy relics, everything from Bowery Boys to Wayne's Brothers, I think ICC is due for that's right, eventually episode. Edgar Bergman teamed up with uh, show favorite W.C. Fields. Paul Winchell with your precious Stooges. I believe a few informational documentaries and the lost art are out there. I know a broad topic like this isn't typical for you guys but personally I think a strength of the show is taking heed of stuff that's wrongfully been consigned to the dustbin of history. Movies that in other words of Rodney Dangerfield get no respect. And you strike a great balance of poking fun and celebrating in those episodes. If you aren't interested in a whole episode but think the topic is decent material for a fan mail discussion please take a minute or two to share your thoughts on the nexus of ventriloquism and cinema lucas simon foster now i have a question for lucas simon foster are you a ventriloquist (laughs) and you want us to bring respect to the art that you practice on a daily basis i am
1: so tickled by this request a ventriloquism on film episode like uh, you know he mentioned edgar bergen and paul winchell who are like the comedy ventriloquist guys like would we theoretically talk about Anthony Hopkins in Magic? Thinking
0: about the subject and the fact that no one has ever liked ventriloquism in any form. <laughs> that,
1: that's not necessarily true, Justin. I was
0: reminded that as a child, I had a ventriloquist dummy that I loved and drew in my notebooks all the time. And that's Slappy from the Goosebumps series. Oh, of
1: course. Famous. So, I don't know. I am so tickled by this request uh that i actually think that like maybe we should do it like as a patreon episode i like, agree with you will let's watch um never give a sucker no not that one what's what's the one um um you can't cheat an honest man the one with okay. edgar bergen and char and uh W W C wc fields and i don't know if you want to watch stop look and laugh with paul winchell um and the, the three I have Stooges. no idea what that is. They, okay, so Stop, Look, and Laugh is basically Columbia took a bunch of old Three Stooges comedy shorts. Oh,
0: and he does interstitial stuff, right? That's right. Uh, I feel like we can get like an all... There's got to be some like movie that they tried to center around ventriloquist act.
1: Did Jeff Dunham have his own starring vehicle?
0: <laughs> <laughs> when will ventriloquism come back? You know, but not the Jeff Dunham variety, which is racist. Unless, as just uh, Dunham tried to reinvent himself as like a Ralph Bakshi-like figure that is only displayed. Playing these stereotypes to actually critique them. Here's
1: what I would like to know from any ventriloquism scholars in the audience. What percentage of ventriloquism throughout history has been racist? because I would just guess probably like 80%. Oh,
0: I would agree. 80%. Yes. So uh, we'll put that one in our back pocket. And moving on, we have a question from Andy Bolsever. And he goes, is Donnie Darko responsible for the 80s nostalgia wave, Stranger Things, etc.? Was it a fluke or did Richard Kelly have any real talent? Thank you. I have an answer for that. I don't think Donnie Darko started the 80s wave. I think that uh, the people who grew up in the 80s gained power and a louder voice through the magic of the internet, which has frozen their generation in time and made them the dominant media consumer which is why 80s nostalgia continues to
1: this day i definitely think there's something to that and i also think that like nostalgia for certain decades is kind of inevitable once people get to a certain age although i am wondering when 2000s nostalgia is going to Start kicking in. When are we going to get the American Idol like reunion stadium tour with Ruben and Clay and Kelly and Justin? You know,
0: the argument, you know, many people uh, smarter than me have made is the fact that it's basically the end of history after 2000, right? (laughs) Like, culture has almost frozen at that point. And it's not like you can do an American graffiti where uh, the you know, short distance is vast as far as the people were living at the time.
1: I think Mark Fisher wrote about this a bunch. It might not be the end of political history, but it's the end of like cultural history where like the stuff that was made in the 60s felt so distant from the stuff in the 90s, but the stuff in the 90s doesn't quite feel as distant to us in whatever decade we're in right now. Yeah,
0: exactly. Like, if you think back to like 2005 and how things were different, it's like, nah, I pretty much dressed exactly the same. Uh, I didn't have a smartphone, but that was pretty much it. I don't
1: know. I still think that uh, people are going to be nostalgic about stuff from their childhoods. I
0: can't believe you could remember any of the people in American Idol. I don't know any of those names. Clay Aiken, that was one of the guys,
1: right? Correct. Yeah. Yes. I think there were some other ones. Well, I mean, we did get 2000s nostalgia when the host of that popular TV show, The Apprentice, was elected president.
0: All right. And does Richard Kelly have any talent? I feel like we covered that in a Patreon episode we did on Southland Tales. But
1: even so, what do you think, <sighs> Justin? I have no strong feelings on this topic.
0: Yeah, me neither. I mean, I really liked Donnie Darko when it came out, and I haven't really loved any of the films that he's made since then. And I think we kind of cover that on the Southland Tales episode. I love that it exists, and I don't like the movie itself, (laughs) pretty much.
1: Yeah, I would say that if Donnie Darko moves you, and if Southland Tales moves you, and if The Box moves you, then uh, he has talent for you. Yeah, exactly.
0: And he is like one of the great examples of one of those outside the box auteurs, especially because he's made so few films. So it's easy to champion him in that way. But you must also consider the fact that he produced Do They Serve Beer in Hell? Or I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell.
1: Tucker Max, who, by the way, uh, Tucker Max now is a uh, inspirational quotes guy on Twitter. You should check that out. (laughs) He's totally abandoned his old like drunken bro persona. Now he's like a a success win guy. I love
0: that. That's amazing. It's just another kind of toxicity. Uh, (laughs) Will I be buying that Arrow Southland Tales Blu-ray? Of course. I'm a goddamn sucker, man. (laughs) Like maybe there'll be one day I'll like Southland Tales. The cast is so crazy. John Lovitz, The Rock, Christopher Lambert. Love it. So we have one final letter here. And it's from Tony Marshall, and they go. I finally bit the bullet and watched Rebecca Twenty Twenty. I like Wheatley, but seeing this progression is disappointing, as it really feels like with more success, he is getting further from what made him good. Is there any directors whose continued work seem to get worse and worse for you that you felt were a great voice early on and whom you have followed from their beginning? I say beginning, so you can't cop out by saying like Coppola or Bogdanovich. As a director and critic, respectfully, I imagine it hurts more when you you find someone before others and you see them make all the wrong choices. P.S. 100 equals Jackie, 200 equals Godzilla, 300 equals question mark. I ask because I know it'll be long and I want to watch a bunch of what
1: you're going to talk about beforehand.
0: I think we've already covered that 300 has to be Shrek Fest we watch every Shrek Oh, wow. Uh,
1: yeah, I'm not necessarily going to say no to that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, me and Will have talked about it. I think we have one that's like a big one that we have not covered for this topic. But, you know, I know that Will's been watching James Bond's so, like, there's got to be a mega James Bond episode we, as well. We will do
1: that at some point. But regarding his question. So, I mean, does Tim Burton count? Am, am I old enough to claim Tim Burton? Mm,
0: definitely. Because I think that when Tim Burton was at his height, even you may not have seen Edward Scissorhands theatrically, that he was a vision that felt fresh and that you were excited for the next movie that he was going to make. Yeah,
1: because like when I was five years old, I knew who Tim Burton was like I, I I knew who he was in the 90s when he was still at his peak and I and I loved him. Um, How about you? I got
0: a name for you guys. Uh, definitely Robert Rodriguez. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> That's a guy that when you hear his story, you watch El Mariachi, you're like, I like this. It's energetic. It's got flaws. But you know what? This is very interesting and I'm excited to see what he does next. And Desperado, you're like, this is fun. It's a bit of a mess, but, you know, he's getting his sea legs and then, you know, he's got funds on like the faculty. But most of his uh, filmography is like, oh, man, what are you doing? I do not like this, even though that I like the intent that you approach a lot of this stuff. Like, I just want to make movies with my kids, which is a very honorable decision to make. I'm rooting for
1: Alex Ross Perry.
0: Mm, definitely. Yes. I,
1: don't, I think the jury is still out.
0: Yeah, he's got bills to pay. Well, <laughs> you know, he's got to direct and write Fear Street part two, I believe, as his next movie. Alex Ross Perry is an interesting guy that the success of the of uh, Listen Up, Philip, and whatever minor success it had, uh, created a reaction that he wanted to kind of reinvent himself with every movie that he made, which is not, you know a uh, bad thing because you know as a filmmaker you don't want to be pigeonholed in the one thing that you did but with every film he strays away from like what we really loved about those movies we're like no just come back do, do do the thing that you did really well i like the earlier funnier ones yes exactly so uh thank you again for that letter and if you have any questions or comments we can be reached at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com and this week on our patreon we're talking about what we watched this week on the important cinema club uh currently weekly screening series that is happening every Friday at 7pm at twitch.tv slash Important Cinema Club. And the first film was Jerry Lewis's The Ladies' Man. That's right.
1: We are returning to the topic of our very first episode and a topic that comes up all the time. Jerry Lewis.
0: And I forgot to do this last week, but uh, there's a new Gold Ninja video that's been released. And it's an awesome one uh, because it's one by a filmmaker that I loved when I was a teenager. And now I got to release his film on Blu-ray or any physical media for the first time. We talked about uh, Dennis Rule back in an episode where we did about zero budget action. He is uh, the main villain and he worked as choreographers on a bunch of stunt people stuff including Contour. Uh, he choreographed or co-choreographed the uh, Bollywood film The Man Who Feels No Pain and he directed and starred in a film called Unlucky Stars which is a throwback to like the Hong Kong golden age of cinema. The name being a riff on the Lucky Stars film. Uh, the ones that stars Jackie, Jung uh, Biu and Sammo oh Hung. And the film has never been released on blu-ray especially in this director's cut form not only am i bringing it to blu-ray with a bunch of special features uh like a making of doc that he cut together and he shot uh deleted scenes i also recorded a new commentary with him and did like a career-length interview with him as well of what it is like to be like a stuntman in the trenches doing the greatest work that you can really do as like a stunt choreographer and no one giving you any money to keep doing it unless you do it on your own. And what's great about uh, *Unlucky Stars*, a movie that took him years to make, is that like there's a whole bunch of faces that went on to be like really uh, big in the stunt world, including Vlad Rimberg, who is a supporting role and is the action choreographer on the film, and uh, Sam Hargrave, who plays the villain in the picture, went on to be Captain America's stunt double. He was a second unit director on the Avengers films. He uh, choreographed the action in the Mandalorian in the Disney Plus show. And he also directed the Chris Hemsworth film Extraction. And he's in this film as... The villain who does like has a big action climax at the end of the picture. So,
1: folks, I know that we all wish that there were still movies with Hong Kong style action scenes, and there is one.
0: It's called Unlucky Stars, <laughs> and it can be purchased at GoldNinjaVideo.com. Like all our releases, it's limited to five hundred copies. So, what are we doing next, next week? Next we'll- week
1: we are returning to classic Hollywood. We are exploring director Jacques Tourneur. Tourneur is probably best known for directing Cat People the Val Luton-produced horror classic. And in his films, Turner, uh, as I understand it, often evoked a certain state. He, You know, they're, they're films in kind of a, a dreamy nightmare realm. And
0: while we will not be talking about Cat People, because we did cover it in a Val Luton episode that we did, which uh, when we uh, decided on this topic, I had completely forgot. So thank you for bringing it up, Will. Otherwise, we would have done the Cat People again. <laughs> but I think we'll tackle probably his two biggest ones that are not the Luton Pictures, his uh, Robert Mitchum Noir Out of the Past and Curse of the Demon, which is very Val Luton-esque, but was not produced by the uh, famous producer. And
1: we should also look at one of his westerns. Oh, yeah,
0: because, I mean, Tourneur was a western guy. He has so many to his credit, like uh, Canyon Passage, Stars of My Crown, Wichita, Wichita, and of the indies. And he's one of those guys that was also kind of a fascinating studio director in the sense that he did any project that came his way because, you know, mandated usually by the studio. And he was also one of the guys that I I need to add to my list that made uh, gigantic, cumbersome Peblum films like Anthony Mann did, even Edgar G. Ulmer, and Jacques Tourneur did as well with 1959's The Giant of Marathon. And it's basically where the studio directors went to die. (laughs) Like, direct these big, uh, cumbersome epics. So I'm really excited to jump into this topic. This is one that I feel like was on my list early on and just kind of fell away, uh, like Frank Tashlin, which we talked about on a Patreon episode. Well,
1: eventually we will get to all facets of cinema on this podcast.
0: <laughs> Every piece of cinema me and Will will talk about until we keel over over our microphones. So until then, my name is Justin Clue.
1: I'm Will Sloan. Thanks
0: for listening. Justin here, interrupting briefly to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers, who include William Barshop, Minu Jun, Oren Lyman, Amy Butterfield, Lance Garrickson, Zoid Wheeler, Jane Smith, Marius Juknivius, and Andrew Miller. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. As per usual, we could not do it without you. And as I mentioned briefly during the main body of the podcast, we will be hosting a Important Cinema Club Cinematech screening this Friday, January 5th at 7 p.m. It will be a double bill. And just follow me at DeClueJ on Twitter for more information. And with that, I now
1: return you to your regular scheduled programming.
0: Well, I uh, saw in your letterbox this week that you watched something that was a little sexy. Oh, yeah.
1: You know, I got myself all lubed up and ready to go. I watched the final John Waters directorial effort, A Dirty Shame. Oh,
0: I had seen it a long, long, long time ago, probably right when it came out. And I don't think I understood it upon its release. And I feel like I would appreciate it much more if I watch it now.
1: I remember seeing it when it was like new on video at Rogers Video, where I I saw movies back then. A
0: Dirty Shame was one of those DVDs that haunted the bargain bins like a ghost that will never leave. And
1: I remember when I saw it as a teenager, I thought it was terrible. Watching it now, I quite liked it. And uh, you know, I think it's got that Uh, John Waters spirit. But what I found interesting about it was, you know, so it's a movie that's about sex, basically, it's uh, Tracy Ullman stars as like a repressed Baltimore housewife, who gets a bonk to the head, which turns her into a nymphomaniac. And this keeps happening to all the characters like they get a bonk on the head, and they become either nymphomaniacs, or they become prudes. And In the movie, also, Johnny Knoxville plays like the leader of a cult of sex addicts, all of whom have a different bizarre fetish, like sploshers or adult babies or bears, you know, this kind of very it's very encyclopedic in all of its fetishes. And
0: I think that the movie, upon its release, was riding the end of the wave of the American Pie style gross out comedy. And upon its release, it was kind of dismissed as a lesser version which is hilarious to say of those movies.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it got terrible reviews. It was kind of marketed as a gross-out comedy. Mm-hmm. And and it is kind of a gross-out comedy, but also it got NC-17 from the MPAA, which was like the rating that was the kiss of death, the NC-17. And watching it now, it's like it's amazing it got an NC-17 because it's like it's so harmless. Anything
0: to do with sex, though, they hate it. They hate it so much.
1: Well, this is why I think the movie is actually interesting because the fact that it got Nancy Seventeen means that something about it really rubbed them the wrong way. I mean,
0: <laughs> or the right way. Well, yes.
1: John Waters in interviews has said that when he asked them like, "What can I cut?" they said, "Oh, we we, we just stopped taking notes." Like it was overall tone, and the overall tone of the movie is very sex positive. Yeah,
0: I thought it was just like goofy.
1: Like that's the overall tone of it. <laughs> well, the. the The thesis of the movie is basically that all sex is good, all fetishes are good, and to be promiscuous, to be wildly sexually promiscuous is actually a very positive lifestyle choice that you can partake in. And that is actually different than the other gross-out comedies of the time. Yeah,
0: because the other gross-out comedies is that, like, sex is gross— You know, men are horny, but they should be shamed through embarrassing situations for wanting to um, enact any of these urges. And
1: think about all those movies. Like we did a whole episode on the Wayans Brothers. We did an episode on SNL comedies. Those movies are 90% gay panic jokes. And here, A Dirty Shame is like the only... Hollywood gross-out comedy movie that that is, like, all fetishes are good, actually, and homosexuality is, is good and positive. You know, it's one of those movies where, like, if it came out now, it wouldn't seem as interesting because sex positivity discourse is much more mainstream now than it was in 2004. But this was a year before Brokeback Mountain came out, and remember how controversial that was. So it's an interesting, like, historic artifact, this movie. Like because you know when it came out if you read the reviews they're all kind of like "Ugh, this is so childish you know oh he he really thinks he's being shocking with all of this but the fact that it got an nc-17 movie i think just proves that he
0: was shocking that people weren't ready for it yeah
1: so i don't know i liked it quite a bit i thought it was very fun and, and funny. how
0: do you think it stands as the last cinematic work of john waters because i do not think he will be pulling another feature film out of his hat uh before you know what happens to all of us does well
1: in the very final scene johnny knoxville like elevates above the ground and his head like pops open and like a bunch of splooge shoots out and it lands on the camera and that is the final image in a john waters film just a camera coated in cum and i think that's a beautiful note to end his career on you know it's a thesis statement fen du cinema.